Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We start today with the largest study of homelessness in the U.S. in several decades. It came from researchers at the University of California, San Francisco. They collected 3,200 questionnaires and more than 350 in-depth interviews with adults experiencing homelessness around California in urban, rural, and suburban areas. Dr. Margot Couchel is the principal investigator of the study. She is a director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative. She joins us now to talk about what researchers learned and how it might be relevant outside of California. Dr. Cushell, welcome. Thank you for having me. What was the purpose of this study? We really wanted to get a handle on who was experiencing homelessness in California. How did they come to be homeless? What were their experiences and what was keeping them there? We really wanted to design this to help uh, policymakers design policies and to try to get above the rhetoric a little bit and do really careful science to really understand the problem. How is this different from the once every two years point in time count? So point in time counts are designed um, as a way to count the number of people experiencing homelessness. Each jurisdiction, which can be a county or part of a county or several counties, uses slightly different methods. And some do surveys, some don't, but this was really meant to give us a sense, not of how many people in California are experiencing homelessness, but to be able to represent the experience of the state as a whole rather than a specific jurisdiction. Can you give us a sense for how this was carried out? Yeah, so we faced with a state as huge as California. Um, we knew that we couldn't go to every place. And so we divided the state up into eight sections that were based on some other ways people have divided the state. And then we learned everything we could about each of the counties um, in California. And we basically threw it all into a big computer model and had it choose for us one county from each of those eight sections that we would be able to represent the state. In each of those counties, we spent months ahead of time learning every place where adults experiencing homelessness might be. So homeless shelters, encampments, free and low-cost food lines, and the like. And then we learned a lot about them and developed a sampling uh, scheme. So we basically randomly chose from amongst those and had a, a plan. Like we would talk to every third person or every fifth person in those areas. We sent teams that included our own researchers who traveled around, as well as people that we hired from the um, area. We had them um, accompanied by people with lived experience who really knew the areas, knew the ins and outs, could help make other people comfortable. We had iPads and portable Wi-Fi and went in and um, asked a survey, which lasted about 45 minutes. We did it in English and Spanish, used interpreters for others. And then based on people's answers to questions, we um, chose about one in every eight people for what's called an in-depth interview, where we just turn on a tape recorder and ask a series of open-ended questions to really get at the full depth of their experience. How did those, the researchers, along with the people with lived experience, how did they get people to actually 
say yes to tell their stories. I mean, even just the questionnaire alone, that, that's, a, that's 40 minutes. That's not nothing, yeah. let alone the in-depth interview with the tape recorder. What was their, yeah. what, what was their way in? Yeah, I mean, we were really blessed. We did this study and had a, a group of people with lived experience advising us from day one, helping us to craft the questionnaire and the in-depth interviews, but importantly, helping us to strategize and what would make people comfortable, honest, willing to accept. Um, and then we had local folks with lived experience on the ground sort of going ahead of us and saying, hey, I'm coming in with a team of researchers. They're good people. I trust them. Um, they're, they're not here to judge you. Um, um, we did it anonymously in all but one county where we voluntarily at the end of the interview asked for people's names so we could link data, but mostly we did it anonymously. Um, we spent a lot of time helping people understand that we were not ever going to name them, we're not ever going to know about them, but that it was important for us to see the experience of people um, who had been homeless. And we offered a, um, a small gift card. Um, usually in most places, it was a, a like a gift card that was turned in that could be used at just about any vendor rather than a specific store, because we heard from our lived experience board that many people felt uncomfortable in certain stores that they might be followed around. So it was a like a, um, a card that they could use in just about any place they wanted. And people said yes. We kept really careful track of who said yes, who said no, and um, use that because we basically weighted the answers just like the census does for what we call non-response. But we were looking to see if any particular types of people might have said no. But really, we had an overwhelmingly positive response because we used all of these methods. So, I mean, and, and that double checking was a way to um, try to prevent some version of a self-selection effect where the results would be skewed by virtue of, of who agreed to, to take part. Absolutely. You know, when someone doesn't agree to take um, part, you have only limited information about them, but we had agreed upon several observable characteristics. We also were really careful that if someone couldn't consent, because it was a research study, so people had to give informed consent. And if someone, let's say, couldn't give informed consent because they were intoxicated or because um, they were um, had dementia or something, we were able to keep track of that and then take that into account in the statistics at the end. Hmm. So let's turn to the actual, the the meat of, of, of this. And I'm curious, before we get to any of the, the nitty gritty specifics, you've been working with people experiencing homelessness, first as uh, a physician, and now as, as both a physician and the head of, of a much larger research institution for decades now. Were you nevertheless surprised by anything that came out of this study? There were a few things that would probably surprise most people that didn't surprise me as much, but even I was surprised by a few things. I think I was surprised by how optimistic people were that relatively small amounts of money would have prevented their homelessness. I think I was surprised by a few other aspects of people's experiences. Um, I was surprised, for instance, by how many of the women were pregnant during this episode. That really jumped out at me, where 26% of all people who were women or cis women or assigned female at birth had been pregnant during this episode of homelessness. I think I was 
maybe a little surprised by how disconnected folks who were unsheltered were, how little help they had been receiving to get out of this predicament. Hmm. Let's talk about um, geography for a second. There is an idea that liberal cities or liberal states or places that have less punitive approaches to homelessness are magnets. Um, magnets to people who, who don't have a place uh, of their own to live. What does the data show in terms of where people were before they became homeless? So this would be one of those things that might surprise most people, didn't necessarily surprise me, but I think it's really important to know. We did not find any evidence of people moving towards magnet regions and certainly not moving towards California. So 90% of everybody lost their stable housing in California. California had been where they were really living, not living homeless, but living in a house before they became homeless. 75% were in the same county that they lost their last housing in. Even amongst the 10% who had come from outside California, that was generally because they had deep ties to California. Um, and so we knew this from the surveys and from the in-depth interviews. People really were Californian. And we did not see any evidence of a pull um, towards um, areas that might um, sort of have more resources. We saw some movements like people who had been disrupted by wildfires were a good example of people who had often fled one region because they just realized there was no housing coming anywhere near there. But, um, but overall, we did not see a lot of movement and certainly not movement in the way that the public views it might be happening. How do you explain that disconnect between the reality and a, a very common public understanding? I think it's important to note that all over the country, people believe this, that if you go to other regions of the country, everyone thinks that people experiencing homelessness are from elsewhere. I think, um, you know, and on one hand, it's a natural way of like disbelief that we could be doing this to our own neighbors, our own friends. I think it's a way to subtly um, let ourselves, the house community off the hook for what has happened. And I think it ultimately becomes dangerous because it becomes a way to dehumanize people, to treat people as less than or other. But what we know and what, you know, all our research, but many other forms of research have shown is that people do stick close to home. And that what people said is they were homeless, but they but their home was California or their home was a county that they were in. That first of all, when people lose their housing, the last thing that they're really able to do is garner the resources to pick up and leave everything that they knew behind. Um, it's, it's actually just hard to do. I think the reason, though, people have this idea is that um, cities and particularly sort of cities, often the same cities that have a lot of benefits, tend to be cities that have a tax base. Cities have a tax base often because they have a lot of wealthy people who can pay more taxes on, you know, property taxes. And so what we know is that homelessness varies between regions very, very much by the cost of housing in that area. And particularly the disconnect between the cost of housing and um, the incomes of low income people. In our, in our study, the median monthly household income in the months before homelessness was $960 a month. That's about 15% 
of the area median income um, within California. People were desperately poor and the wealthier the area was, often the higher the housing costs and the bigger the disconnect between what people could afford and what they could find. This gets to the the, the bigger issues of the reasons for, pe- for people becoming homeless and the connections between homelessness and and housing and housing affordability. But you've said in the past that for every 100 people who are at risk of homelessness, only one will become homeless. Does this massive study give you a better understanding of what makes that difference, of, of the difference between that one and the 99? Yeah, I mean, you know, really what we see when we look at people experiencing homelessness, unfortunately, is the tip of a much larger iceberg. And this makes things like preventing homelessness harder because it's hard to predict who's going to be there. We found for most people that it was a slow slide or, um, you know, things fell apart slowly and then all at once. Um you know, that for most people, about um, 20% of people, almost 20%, 19% came from institutions. So these are folks who were discharged from jails or prisons, hospitals, drug treatment programs without any place to go. Of everyone else, they came from housing. 60% of those were what we call non-leaseholders. They were already doubled up with friends or family. They were staying on the good graces of someone else who they could stay with. And this turns out to be a very, very high risk situation because they have no legal rights. They often are really dependent on friends or family, and they um, are often living in overcrowded, tense situations. We found that these fell apart very quickly within a day's notice. 40% of people um, came straight from a situation for which they had legal rights. They were tenants, mostly a few were homeowners. What we found that was really interesting is even in that group, they had had a slow slide down to homelessness, meaning that they told us, you know, they had lived in a two-bedroom apartment and then somebody lost their job and then they couldn't afford it. So they all piled into one room in a house and then something went wrong there. So I think in terms of finding that secret sauce, we learned that it um, there were certain key events. The biggest one was loss of household income. So what you need to do to prevent is you need to look at the people who are really at risk. Those are people who are spending more than 50% of their household income on rent. Those are people who are very poor, less than 30%, maybe in less than 15% the median income of the area. Um, Ever having been homeless before is a huge risk factor for being homeless again. But we also need to look for people who are going through these life events that we know could be triggers. You know, someone in the household losing income, we all should be saying of someone who has these characteristics, we should be jumping in to prevent that episode from destabilizing the whole household. How, how would that uh, jumping in work? Look, because we're, we're talking yeah. about huge systemic policy questions, uh, different pots of money. I mean, and there's even the question of how the the people who might have that money, if it were set aside, you know, as a policy, how they would even know um, who to give it to when. What's yeah. a mechanism that you imagine? So there's some really good research um, and practice coming out of New York City where there's a right to shelter. So what that means is they actually know as soon as people become homeless because they present to shelter. 
where they have set up um, focused on areas where people are at most at risk, which are often low income areas, formerly redlined areas, um, you know, areas that are dense in people who've um, had lots of structural oppression, people of color, et cetera. They have these neighborhood hotspots and they do things like post on the subway and buses. Hey, are you worried about losing your housing? If you are, come visit us. When people present there, they actually ask them a series of questions that are actually scored because they know the things that have in the past predicted who's going to become homeless. Basically, they give resources really only to the people who score high enough. So some of the people come and they're unfortunately turned away but they're turned away because they really want to be sure that they concentrate their homeless prevention activities in the people who are at the highest risk. And in the end, are we really talking about cash, about emergency rental assistance, say? That seems to be the most important thing. And in our study, you know, 70% of people said three to $500 a month of rental assistance would have prevented, meaningfully prevented their homelessness. 82% said five to $10,000 one time would have. And a much higher percentage said something that sounds like what we call a housing choice or Section 8 voucher would have prevented it. So these like organizations in New York do a lot of that, catching people up on rental assistance, but they're pretty, they do a lot of things. Like they will provide mediation with the landlord or property owner. They will buy new furniture because maybe your sister is willing to take you in, but there's no place for you to sleep. And so maybe they'll buy a bunk bed. You know, they really will do a lot of different things. They'll make sure that you're signed up for benefits. They'll help you get a job. They will make sure your legal rights or exercise. But cash is certainly a very important part of it. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking right now with Dr. Margot Cushell, the director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, also the principal investigator behind a major new study that collected the experiences of thousands of people experiencing homelessness all across California. Just to stick with this question of of preventing homelessness for a second. What is the argument that you would make, the the cold-hearted financial argument you would make if we just set aside human misery for a second, preventing human misery as a good in and of itself? If that's not enough for people who are looking at the use of public funds, what's the justification for emergency rental assistance in terms of saving money down the line? Yeah, I mean, homelessness, clearly the most important thing is a personal cost of people experiencing it, but it is extremely expensive for societies to do. Things like emergency shelter cost between $1 and $300 a night, and they don't end homelessness. Public works, policing costs, excess use of jails, excess use of hospitals. Um, we pay for homelessness. The, the impact on businesses, you see this in you know downtown San Francisco. There's a lot of concern about visible homelessness as decreasing tourism. That's what people are afraid of, decreasing people's sense of public safety. There's so many ways that society pays for homelessness that it would make a lot more sense to put those funds into both preventing it happening and really ending it by solving our affordable housing crisis. California right now has 24 units of housing available and affordable for every 100 extremely low-income households. Oregon has 23. 
really dealing with the roots of this problem is going to cost money, but we have to be honest, we're spending that money. We're just spending it in not very effective ways. I want to turn to behavioral health. I'm thinking about the untreated mental illness um, or serious substance use disorder. How often were these issues a result of homelessness as opposed to the other way around? And, and is that even a question that you can answer? Yeah, we tried to get at it in different ways, asking about for people, let's say, who've had a psychiatric hospitalization, did the first hospitalization happen before or after their first episode of homelessness? We talked to people about their substance use and how it changed during this episode. And I would say it is both um, a contributor to the cause and it is an effect and it's hard to sort those out. There's no question that if you ask the question, why does one region have more homelessness than another region? Why do California and Oregon have so much higher per capita rates of homelessness than Ohio and West Virginia? That's 100% because of housing costs. The higher the housing costs, the more homelessness. If you ask a different question, why is this person in Oregon, why is this person in California experiencing homelessness? There's no question that having a substance use or mental health disability increase one's personal risk for homelessness. But there's also no question that homelessness complicates and worsens those. We saw incredible amounts of trauma. 10% of everyone in our study was sexually assaulted during this episode of homelessness. More than a third were physically assaulted. People were exhausted, hungry, scared. Very few people were getting any support for mental health problems or substance use problems, even though many wanted it and had actually tried to access it. I think the other important point is, so, so first of all, homelessness worsens mental health problems, worsens substance use, and complicates or lessens treatment or the ability to address these problems. The flip side has also been true, and we've been, and it's been shown empirically, is that if you offer people housing, you don't make it contingent on their sobriety, but you offer them robust and low barrier treatment, two things happen. People get housed and stay housed, no matter how severe these disabilities are, but they then take you up on your offer for mental health and substance use treatment. Really at the heart of this problem is we don't have the housing. It's not to say that folks with behavioral health disabilities aren't way overrepresented. It's a complicated circle, but to interrupt that, we have to get them housing, and then we need to provide those services and make them really easy for people to get. You mentioned the discrepancies currently between states like Oregon and California in terms of homelessness and, and other places. I think you mentioned Ohio and West Virginia and pointed to housing affordability as as the clearest empirical reason for that difference. But often in American society, what happens in California eventually happens in other states. Do you think that's going to be the case for homelessness as well? Yeah, I'm afraid that what we're seeing in California is definitely a model in a not a good way um, up and down the West Coast and throughout other parts of the country as well. Any place that has these high housing costs that are places where people want to live, that's why we love Oregon and California. There are places that are wonderful places to be in many ways. Many people come in, but California has done a terrible job keeping up with their housing supply. 
Housing shortages, housing scarcity lead to increased housing costs. As a society, we've really backed away from a commitment to pay, um, to subsidize housing or to see housing as both a responsibility of government to help make sure everyone has it. Only one in four people across this country who qualify for rental subsidies receive them. Um, there has been very limited spending from the federal government, states, et cetera, on subsidizing housing for low-cost um, individuals. So I see our results as really similar to what we'd see in many parts of the country. And in some ways, it is a warning. Don't become like us. You know, address your housing crisis before it becomes as bad. We need to get the federal government bought in to helping fund for affordable housing. And we need to let go of some of these myths that we're attached to that aren't helping us solve the problem. Margot Cushell, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. Margot Cushell is a physician and the director of the UCSF Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, also the principal investigator behind this major new study that collected the experiences of thousands of people experiencing homelessness all across the state of California. Members make Think Out Loud and all of OPB's independent journalism possible. Support the next fascinating story and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.